Well, good evening, everyone. Can I add my welcome to those you've already received from our happy hosts at the front door and from Stuart as well, and I am one of the pastoral team. <laughs> um, it's great to be here with you tonight on a, on a cold night outside, but nice and warm in here. And tonight we come to, as has been said, probably the most well-known story in the whole of the book of 1 Samuel, David and Goliath. Calling something a, a David and Goliath battle is commonly used to describe a situation like the uh, game on tonight at nine o'clock, where a smaller, weaker opponent faces a stronger adversary. You can use it to describe sporting battles, legal battles, even the theme of movies like Aaron Brockovich or The Castle. But is the biblical account of David and Goliath just a great underdog story? Is it recorded in the Bible to be a source of inspiration to us, to to likewise take on the giants in our lives, to be fearless, to to believe in ourselves? Does it perhaps have a spiritual message about how we can overcome sin or defeat God's enemies? Or are all of these applications missing the main point that the author wants us to comprehend? Familiarity with passages like this can lead us to think that we already know what these chapters are about and that is inevitably dangerous when we read the Bible. So let's pray, asking God to help us to not only understand what he's saying, uh, but that he give us the grace that we need to enable us to respond appropriately. So will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us. We are privileged people to be able to meet together like this, to have a, a comfortable building with the Bible in a language that we understand with people that can help us uh, to encourage us to, to keep following you in our daily walk. And so as we spend some time thinking about your word, though it was written long ago, it's still ever relevant to us. And so we ask that you would enable us by your spirit to understand what you're saying to us and give us your grace so that we can respond appropriately. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. A friend of mine grew up in Bangkok And she told me the story of a friend of hers who also grew up there. Her friend, a little girl at the time, had wandered off from her mother and was playing, completely unaware that she was on railway lines. Well, while we in Australia have safety fences that would never allow that to take place, even today, parts of Thailand's rail system still depend on you staying out of harm's way with markets set up literally right next to the tracks, only moving out of the way as the train comes through. Alerted by the sound of an oncoming train, the mother looked up from her work in the market, suddenly realising that that her daughter had wandered off. And she saw her playing in the path of an oncoming train. But she was too far away to reach her before the train would hit her. Running towards her daughter desperately, she called out, lie down, stay down. And immediately, the daughter lay down, allowing the train to pass over the top of her, causing no harm whatsoever, apart from the skipped heartbeats of a few people that were on there and watching. The little girl's obedience to her mother's word saved her life. Reflecting on the story, my friend and I pondered our own kids' chance of survival in such a situation. (laughs) 
then far more appropriately, we quickly moved on to consider our own obedience. As a child, would I have obeyed just like that? Would we have acted immediately, not knowing why we were being told to lie down, or would we have finished what we were doing first? Well, hopefully you'll agree this is an issue not just for children. Now that we're adults and old enough to make our own decisions, what does it mean for us to obey God's word? To obey it immediately and completely. Adding even another degree of difficulty to this issue, if you're the king of Israel, the one who gives orders, what does it look like to take orders? The very famous account of David and Goliath may not immediately appear to be about the issue of obeying God's word. And I think that it does contain multiple lessons, depending on the angle or the framework with which you look at it. But we're going to consider chapters 16 to 17 in three parts, answering the question, what does it mean to obey the word of the Lord? In verses 1 to 13 of chapter 16, We'll think about obeying a clear word from God. In verses 14 to 23, they demonstrate obeying God's word by serving. And then in chapter 17, we'll consider as obeying God's word from the past. Chapter 16 opens with this continued focus on God's rejection of Saul as king of Israel. As we saw last week, the reason for God's rejection of Saul was explicitly identified in chapter 15, verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul's fundamental problem was that he didn't do everything that God told him to do. Mr. 80% presumes that doing the vibe of what God wants is good enough. But it's not. God demands unquestioning obedience even from the king of Israel. And what becomes clearer in chapter 16 is that partial obedience is not just a, a risk, a danger that Saul can fall into, which shouldn't come as a surprise to us because this issue of the response to the word of God was identified way back in chapter 3, verse 1, where it was noted that in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. This scarcity of God's word was God's judgment against Israel for their unwillingness to obey his word when it was given to them. Samuel, in contrast with Israel, was one who did listen to God's word. All of his life, Samuel has been listening to and passing on God's word. This is Samuel who, from his youth, has said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Samuel, who passed on God's word of judgment to Eli and then to Israel when they rejected God as their king. And yet we see in the beginning of chapter 16 that, that even for Samuel, obeying God's word remained a challenge. In verse 1, God speaks, sending Samuel to do a job. Go and anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. Based upon what we know of Samuel, we might assume that when God says jump, Samuel's asks how high. Yet for Samuel in this situation, the practical danger of obeying the word of the Lord is that to go and anoint the son of Jesse would put Samuel's own life in danger, let alone Jesse and his family. 
While Saul had initially been quite reluctant to accept the kingship, power had evidently grown on him to the point that he would even kill the prophet uh, who threatened to take that power from him. And so in verse 2, Samuel understandably balks at obeying the word of the Lord. In response, God tells Samuel a practical way that he can avoid the charge of treason. Go sacrifice at Bethlehem. A practical thing, that, an activity that would have been considered completely normal by anyone who saw it taking place. But notice that alongside of the instructions of where to go and what to do is further explicit instructions of how he is to do his job. Verse 3, you are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. What's unspoken is perhaps the words, whatever you do, Samuel, don't choose the one that you think is best. And in obedience to the word of the Lord, Samuel heads off to Bethlehem. When he arrives there, he's not welcome. The elders of the town are, are not so sure that Samuel's being here is a good thing. What motivates their hesitation isn't made explicit, and yet Samuel reassures them that he has come in peace. He's not there as a, a prophet of judgment this time. Jesse and his sons are invited to a sacrifice, much as Saul had been back in chapter 9, which had then resulted in Saul's being anointed as king. And just as on that occasion... Saul had caught Samuel's eye because of his height. Evidently, David's elder brother, Eliab, is the good-looking, strong, tall warrior type. And I think that the author wants us to notice that in spite of the terrible failure that Saul has been, Samuel is still inclined to pick the next king of Israel based upon how he looks. Even though God has just explicitly reminded Samuel to anoint the one that I indicate. Samuel's default response is to rely on his own thinking, perhaps concluding that Eliab's looks are how God has shown him what to do. And so even while he's in the midst of obeying God, going up to Bethlehem in spite of the danger, there remains the danger of disobeying God by anointing the one that Samuel presumes is most qualified. In the famous verse 7, God sets Samuel straight. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It is only Samuel's obedience to God's word that prevents yet another disastrous choice of king. God has rejected Eliab, and therefore Samuel must too. On the outside, Eliab had all the indicators of being one fit for the task. But God knows that there's something lacking on the inside, and therefore Eliab is not appropriate. And in the following verses, Abinadab, then Shamar, and David's remaining unnamed four elder brothers, one by one, stand in front of Samuel, only to be told that they're not the chosen one either. There's no explanation given, no criteria on which they were considered unsuitable candidates, no opportunity to debate God's decision. God has spoken and therefore it's final. But it appears that there's been some mistake. Jesse has run out of sons and God hasn't picked any of these ones. 
But it's no mistake, there's still one more. One that Samuel doesn't even know about and therefore couldn't have considered in who should be the king. He's out at work looking after the sheep. Samuel has them send for this still unnamed son of Jesse. And note, it's not Samuel, it is the Lord who says, verse 12, rise and anoint him. He is the one. This is clearly all of God. God speaks, Samuel anoints. It reminds us of Hannah's song back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Lord humbles and he exalts. There's been no political manoeuvring going on here in the background. No human motives have polluted the choice of king this time. It's not about his height or his military ability. It's not about where he did his studies or his training. This man is God's choice because this son of Jesse is, in the words of chapter 13, verse 14, a man after God's own heart. And notice that in response, we don't hear Samuel mutter under his breath, oh, he's a bit young, don't you think? No, no questioning if he's a bit short or lacking in experience to lead Israel's wonderful army. Samuel simply obeys the word of the Lord without any hesitation because he trusts that God knows what he's doing. And I think the way this is told is to remind us of our ever-present danger of trusting in something apart from the word of the Lord. If Samuel, the prophet, was in danger of basing decisions on wrong criteria, then surely we are not beyond falling into that same trap. While few of our decisions will require obedience to such a precise revelation as Samuel is responding to here, God's word has been stated on many issues, sometimes incredibly specifically, sometimes in principles. The danger pointed out here is just how easy it is for us to ignore God's word and to make decisions using the same criteria as the crowd. If we stopped and considered carefully, we would realise that the, the so-called experts of our day don't even consider the things that God values. They can't be sure of what the future holds, as God is certain. And yet, despite their limitations, we're tempted to go along with them, go along and follow their advice, choosing a career merely because of the income it can generate or the status that's associated with it. Choosing a life partner based upon how they look or their ability to make us laugh. Responding to social issues, to refugees, in exactly the same way as our non-Christian neighbours respond. Determining how we use our time, our finances, how we parent, by looking at those around us and assuming that what they do is right for us to do too. And yet surely if we're followers of Jesus instead of unconsciously just going along with the world, we need to be reading the Bible, recognising that it is God's word to us. We need to be reading it, contemplating it, and then submitting to it. But will we obey? Do we obey? Sometimes obedience will be seen in surprising ways. And one of those is demonstrated in verses 14 to 23, obedience to God's word by serving. In verse 13, linked to his anointing with oil, 
The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power from that day on. And in an immediate contrast, verse 14 notes that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. When that happened isn't stated. Was it perhaps back in chapter 13 when Samuel first rebuked Saul's disobedience of God's word? We're not sure. But what the author emphasises here is that what separates David from Saul is far more than their ages, their height, their personality or the tribe that they come from. One has God's empowering. The other has been rejected by God because he rejected God's word. Which might lead us to assume that, therefore, David will immediately take over the leading of God's people. Each time that God's spirit has come on come powerfully upon someone, both in the book of Judges and in 1 Samuel, they've gone on then to perform extraordinary military exploits and then run the country. But instead, we get this little story through to the end of chapter 16 of David serving as one of Saul's musicians. After God's spirit left Saul, an evil spirit takes his place and torments Saul. Saul's attendants advise him to try music therapy. And David, the spirit-empowered, anointed, next in line to be king of Israel, enters the service of Saul, which is incredibly ironic. The the king-to-be serving the king rejected. These verses confirm David's musical skills, which result later in a multitude of psalms. It reveals David's continued humility and patience. It shows that he was well-loved by all who knew him and he was good-looking to boot. It does all of those things. And yet again, what the author emphasises is stated at the end of verse 18. And the Lord is with him. We could very quickly throw in, which is not the case for you, Saul, but that would be rubbing it in. And yet, make no mistake, this is the issue. Saul's disobedience of the word of God has resulted in terrible consequences. His attempt to to try and do some of what God's required, mixed in with what he finds convenient or practical, is judged as completely unacceptable by God. Partial obedience is disobedience. And as a result, God is no longer with Saul, no longer fighting for Saul, no longer telling Saul what he should do. Saul has been cut adrift. Because Saul decided to do things on his own terms, rather than submitting to God's ways, God releases him to do everything by himself. The man considered to be the most powerful in Israel, the one who still wears the crown and sits on the throne, still looks good on the outside. But the truth is that Saul is left In desperate circumstances, he has no one to rely on but himself. Verses 14 to 23 may at first glance appear to be mere interesting backstory. But in practice, it is continuing to develop God's own statement from chapter 16, verse 7. While people may look at David and see nothing more than a newly appointed court musician, God's evaluation of what is taking place, is that his anointed one humbly serves others, even those who will become his worst enemies. Saul has, by this time, become so self-serving 
that he's no longer of any use to God. While David, in the words of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, having had his horn exalted, uses what he has been given to serve others. This is what it means to be the godly king. Not exalted to be served by all, but raised up in order to serve all. The first thing that we need to notice from this account is how it prepares us for Jesus' authority and way of leading. Jesus can not only soothe the torment of an evil spirit, but he can command them to leave. And even better than David, Jesus is the anointed one who willingly serves, washing the feet of his disciples and then laying down his life for them. Unlike King David, Jesus will never allow selfish motives to determine his steps. And yet even more directly, I think, for us, with our focus today specifically on serving, isn't there also here a clear challenge to each one of us to be serving one another? A reminder that the path to greatness is through humility. That in the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17, being empowered by God's Spirit is not for our own benefit, but that we would use what we've been given in order to serve and build others up. This is a big part of the reason that God has brought us together, to serve one another. Church is not about what we can get for ourselves, but the group to whom we are committed. Now, I don't know what you guys get to watch at, on TV at home, but one of the favourite TV shows for my family is Armdo's Brush with Fame. On the show two weeks ago, he painted a portrait of Alan Jones, who had bought a nice new gold suit just for the occasion. Now, I'm generally not much of an Alan Jones fan, but he did have an amazing quote from his time as the coach of the Australian rugby union team. Jones challenged his players at the time, asking them... Were they like bacon or eggs? Bacon and eggs is also a bit of a favourite in our household and I assume that burly Australian football players would feel much the same way as I do. But that wasn't Jones's question. Jones didn't ask them, do they like bacon and eggs? He asked them, were they like bacon or eggs? What he was asking them to do was evaluate their commitment to the team. His logic is that a chicken contributes eggs, and obviously there's some personal cost in doing that. But the pig that becomes bacon, well, it gives up its life for the cause. One is a contributor, the other is committed. Jones didn't want players that were chickens, not as in scared. He wanted pigs. It's not often that you're told to be more like a pig, is it? But I think that we can ask the same thing. Are you a chicken or are you a pig? Do you come to church and contribute? Or are you committed to church, committed to Jesus? Is church something that you go to, that you attend? Or is it something that you are a part of? Surely the coach under whom we play has a far more valuable goal than just winning a game of football. In our case, Jesus has clearly told us that commitment is spelt service. So don't look down on serving as if it's something beneath you. It is a God-given opportunity. 
Saul missed this point and he made his gift all about himself. Exalted to kingship, he expected people to serve him. David, on the other hand, even when he was exalted, continued to serve. And by doing so, he lived out Hannah's prayer. Rather than needing to exalt himself, God exalted him. And so that's chapter 16 in a nutshell, which many people may be thinking is a very long introduction to the main act, David and Goliath. But having observed the emphasis in chapter 16, we can now revisit the well-known story of David and Goliath, aware of its significance as obedience to the word of the Lord from the past. Unlike Samuel being commanded by God to go and anoint David, or David being commanded by King Saul to come and serve in the court, there's no obvious command that compels David to go and fight with Goliath. Rather, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 17 establish the problem. There's an almost three-metre giant in the promised land. And Goliath demands a representative, a representative of Israel to come and fight him. A big deal was made over the fact that Saul was a head taller than any other Israelite. But to be tall Saul's servant, verse 8, is in Goliath's mind something worthy of insult. Ha <laughs> ha! You served that puny little guy, Saul. And so he mocks Saul's army, Israel's army. And in response, verse 11, they were dismayed and terrified. Into that context, David is sent by his dad to go and check on his brothers who are fighting in the army. It's a very human reason to end up in the battle zone. When he arrives, David overhears the mocking that Goliath has repeated day by day for 40 days, morning and night. It's a lot of mocking. But what it should be reminding us of is the last time that Israel was intimidated by giants for 40 days. When Israel came out of Egypt the first time and arrived at the promised land, 12 spies had gone into the land. After 40 days of exploring, 10 of them came back and said, impossible, it cannot be done. But what they were actually saying is that we're not going to obey God's word because there are tribes of giants living in the land. Moses had been given a clear instruction from God regarding what Israel was to do. It was accompanied by the promise that God himself would go ahead of them and fight the battle for them. They just needed to watch and see what God would do. But Israel refused to trust God, to, to obey his word. They evaluated the situation by what they could see rather than through the eyes of faith. And as a consequence, Israel disobeyed God's word and ended up wandering in the wilderness as punishment for 40 years. Now for those with eyes to see, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, Israel is repeating the same mistake, only this time rather than tribes of giants, there's only one of them. We can't obey God's word because there's a giant in the land. Now, no explicit instruction has recently been given. And yet we must recognise that the command given to Moses, repeated to Joshua, still stands. Israel were to take over the land. 
to not do so was disobedience against his word. But again, the army is just looking at the superficial. They can only see things in light of what it might achieve for them now. If they were capable of beating this giant, verse 25, they'd be rich and famous and be given a princess as a wife. But David sees things differently. This arrogant giant is not just mocking Saul. He's mocking God. David asks what will be done for the one who gets rid of this disgrace from the land. Not because he's self-interested and seeking what he can get for himself, but because David can see what is really at stake. This is all about God's honour. In verse 28, David's eldest brother, Eliab, comments on David's motive. You have a wicked heart. And yet the very reason that David was chosen over Eliab was that David's heart was in line with God's heart. Eliab is directly contradicting the word of the Lord. David continues to talk with others in the army and and such talk is quickly reported to King Saul. David is whisked off and told by Saul that his confidence is completely unfounded. Nevertheless, Saul is desperate and he's unwilling himself to to lead the army into battle, the very thing that he had been selected by the people to do. And so he agrees to allow this kid to go to what in his mind is certain death. As Samuel had warned the people in advance, a king like the nations have will take your sons and treat them as pawns to be expended for his own benefit. Now Saul does offer the king's armour to David, oblivious that symbolically that would be the perfect thing to do right now. Not only the armour, but give him the crown as well. And yet David refuses to trust in what the crowd assumes wins battles. He knows that it is God who determines the outcome, verse 37. Saul wishes him well, assuming that he's going to go off and die, But again, Saul speaks better than he knows. Yes, the Lord will be with David. The Lord is with David. This trembling in fear of Saul and his army has only happened because God is no longer with Saul. And so because God is with David, David runs, not away from Goliath as the rest of the army had been doing, but towards this intimidating, military mountain of a man. And still the words continue. It's taken 40 verses to get to this point. But even as the battle is about to commence, Goliath is still looking at mere externals and so despises David. He curses David by his gods and predicts the outcome that everyone assumes is about to take place too. But David informs Goliath that... He's made a terrible mistake. This is not a battle between the two vastly uneven warriors that all have assumed it is to be. Goliath has picked a fight with God. Everyone's right. It is an uneven battle. But that's because Goliath boasts of his own greatness, oblivious of the greatness of the one that he's actually been insulting. You have defied the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel. And therefore I will kill not only you, but the whole Philistine army as well. Their bold words from a boy with a sling 
But perhaps even more importantly, they echo the words which were used to explain the Exodus. God defeats Israel's enemy so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. God defeats Israel's enemy so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. David's not fighting for his own honour or fame. He's fighting for God to be known. Not because God's desperate to be recognised or needs the affirmation of his creation. He is the unrivaled king. And everyone needs to live in light of this truth. To live in ignorance of this is to miss the foundational fact of life. Get this wrong and everything else in life will be wrong too. Quite appropriately, the battle itself, unlike how Hollywood make it, is in one sense a massive anticlimax over in a mere two verses because the giant never stood a chance. And as their god Dagon had been beheaded, so their human champion in, in whom they had trusted is likewise beheaded with his own sword. Israel's army surges forward and, and chases the fleeing army out of the promised land. And all Saul can do is watch on in unbelief, unaware of who this kid even is. We can almost imagine him turning to Abner and, and saying, how did that just happen? Because Saul has missed the most important fact of life. He's somehow fallen into the trap of believing that his earlier victories were the result of his own strength, his skill, his ability. He thought that he could save himself. Saul thought that he could run life his own way. But all that did was end in terrible mess, didn't it? So yet again, 1 Samuel chapter 17 anticipates both our typical mistake and its final solution. The account of David and Goliath is not designed to inspire us to, to look inside, to find the hidden warrior within. It's pointing out our complete inability to save ourselves. Live life on your own terms. Reject the word of the Lord. And eventually, God will release you to do everything by yourself. This is the argument of Paul in Romans 1.24. Being let loose to do whatever you want is not a reward, it's a punishment. But the amazing thing is that because God knows that we can't save ourselves, he is always willing to provide the saviour that we need, who comes in the most unexpected package. And so David anticipates a greater saviour that will come in his family line. Called the son of David, he will take on an enemy that everybody fears and no one is able to defeat. Already the king, and yet not recognised as such. Jesus goes into battle as our representative. He defeats death and wins us life, proving that there is a God, not only in Israel, but one who's willing to die for the sin of the whole world. And as the risen Lord, he calls upon us to stop trusting in ourselves and accept the victory that he has won as our representative. Paul summarises this gospel at the beginning of Romans this way. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience 
that comes from faith for his name's sake. It's not obedience that somehow earns our salvation. But once saved, obedience is the expected response from us. As Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What does it mean to obey the word of the Lord? Well, we see clearly now that it means to accept that we cannot save ourselves and that in Jesus, God has sent the one who does what we never could. Jesus obeys the Father perfectly, giving us his righteousness if we trust in him. As a result, if we do trust in him, our lives can now be a response of living as he taught us to. Will we satisfy ourselves with partial obedience, with postponed obedience, or flat-out disobedience? Or will we obey the word of the Lord? Let's pray. Lord God, we've been reminded that it's easy, even for your people, to fall into the trap of continuing to trust in ourselves, to evaluate things by what we can see, by the criteria that those around us use. And yet we've been reminded that this is incredibly dangerous, ultimately incredibly foolish. And so even though it might seem crazy to trust in a crucified Messiah, we ask that you would enable to do just that. Enable us to obey in a new way, which we couldn't do before, because we've accepted Jesus as a substitute in our place. We pray that this week, uh, that as a result of being reminded of the greatness of our Saviour, uh, that we would live changed lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.